0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. Today, we are joined by Michelle de Reich. Michelle is an esteemed marketing executive with notable presence in the APAC region. Throughout his career, he has assumed pivotal leadership positions within globally renowned agencies, showcasing his profound expertise. Notably, Michelle's most recent appointment was as the chief executive officer for the APAC sector of S4 Capital Group. It is noteworthy that Michelle assumed the pioneering role of being the inaugural WPP manager at S4, a testament to his trailblazing influence. In our conversation with Michelle, we discuss his background and experience in the APAC region and his views on the China market. Michelle highlights the opportunities and challenges of doing business in China, emphasizing the country's innovation and immense potential. He advises brands to have a long-term strategy and understand the local market when entering China. We also discuss the impact of COVID-19 on companies' strategies in China and the importance of adapting to technological advancements, addressing misinformation, and prioritizing sustainability in the advertising industry. Michelle also mentions his excitement about the India and Vietnamese markets. Enjoy. If you go into China, I'm not saying that you, you shouldn't be sort of protective of your brand
1: guidelines, but you can't have every little asset that's being created need to be sent to the other side of the ocean for approval, like be adaptable to the local market and let the local market, let it be with a partner or with a local team, let them own certain areas of it that can make them compete and operate in a competitive Chinese environment. I'm talking about speed to market, adaptability, positioning pricing strategies like you need to set it up as a separate stream of your your normal operations
0: home to over 4 billion people the asia pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet Not only is it home to half of the world's under-30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Todd. Happy to be here. All right. So where in the world are you today? Where we're recording you from. Um, I happen to be in Singapore at the moment, where I,
1: I've been living for the last uh, 14 years. Um, just come back from a, from a nice sort of summer trip to, uh, to Canada, which I think you are at the moment as well. So uh, we have some, yes. some shared passion there,
0: yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh not too far from uh where you tend to hang out in Vancouver. Uh where like, I I want to know a little bit about how you ended up in APAC. So if you could walk us through a little bit of your background whether it's your school, past posts and how you ended up working in that area of the world.
1: Uh yeah, so it's um so, but so I I started in the let's called marketing advertising space, whatever you want to call it. Uh probably about 20 odd years ago uh actually my, my first job was in the uh, working for the, the dutch yellow pages uh so we really sort of old school old school sales uh but then on the uh, online department of that so uh, he- helping them to transition from you know the old paper to to to, di- to digital uh did that for a few years that so was sort of you know full-on sales and first step into digital marketing moved into, uh, ad tech advertising tech, sort of the, the ad serving space, which media ad serving space, um, launched the business, uh, in the Netherlands for that a, a company called, I wonder at that time, American business, um, and interestingly enough, uh, after I did that in, in the Netherlands and in, in Dubai and the middle East, which I thought was a nice growth market, um, I was actually on my way on holiday to Bali. Um, and I had to stop over in Singapore. And, um, I remember this quite well, I was, I was probably for about three days in Singapore. And so this must've been around 2000, sort of 2008, 2009. Um, when, you know, sort of in the West, if you want to call it, uh, you know, economical crisis was still, uh, uh sp- still going around pretty, pretty rapidly. Um, there was lots of negativity, uh, in general, um, in the news on the streets and everything. And then I, um, I was in Singapore, I remember well, as I was walking through the the central business district and people were breaking for lunch and I felt this energy, um, an energy of growth still. Uh, And at that time I realized how, uh, how amazing it is to spend time and live in, in, in areas and countries where the economy grows. And it sounds like a very sort of simplistic thing, but I, you know, you've spent some, some years in China as well, where I think through those sort of economical growth years, that's a very different vibe. There's a very different energy, um, knowing that, uh, the person who's selling your bottle of water today, is selling two bottles of water tomorrow, um, is it's energetic. It's exciting. Um, so while I was enjoying my holiday in Bali, I was thinking, how can I move the business that I was working for at that time, uh, into the APAC region, because I really wanted to move, uh, to Singapore, um. Discussed that with the board at that time, uh, and everybody agreed that that was a good plan. And that was my my entry point to, uh, to Singapore, to be honest, and the rest of the region.
0: That's cool. So you kind of dictated and wrote your own path uh, to get there. And I completely agree with that energy. I like the way you put it. I've never in four years had anybody put it that way, where... Um, Being in a place where you can feel the growth, you can feel that excitement where everybody's running forward um, and looking forward and nobody's bothering to look back or being too worried about what's behind them. Everybody's just looking forward. Um, I definitely, that resonates with me for sure during that time when I was in China, the, the kind of the 2008 to 2016 years. Definitely, definitely hear that.
1: Yeah, like I, I think in China, the, the, you know, especially sort of the post-Olympic, um, um, around the Olympics era is what a lot of people talk about when sort of that big growth was happening. Uh, I remember when I arrived in Singapore that at um, that time, the, uh, sort of still the the founder of, of Singapore, lee Kwa Young um almost apologized to the people that for the first time since the existence of Singapore, they did not have double-digit GDP growth. At that time, Europe was flat, if at all. Yeah. So that's that's the different sort of environment you're 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 in so uh very exciting times
0: speaking of exciting maybe for you but not as much for me you've been training for a marathon can you tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah it's it's i mean after i decided to uh to leave s for capital and uh, a few months ago um i started to focus more on myself and family and um you know, a couple of passion projects and um yeah, a couple of stupid things along the way uh, and i sort of categorize this one into stupid things um like fitness and health has always been uh, been important for me and to sort of balance i think the stressful work environment that we uh, we often have and the travel that comes with it um so f- for me to be able to um you know, you know get out of bed every day and, and and get the trainings going on whatever it is i always set what i would call like a stupid goal Uh, something that scares me something that you know if i don't train for it i'm afraid it will kill me relatively you know killing Uh, and i did earlier this year uh, with a couple of friends i did a ski mountaineering trip um uh, sort of an odd route as they call it in uh, in europe um and i know from that that like if i wasn't training for it it's it would be a very tough week um so now my next next project is indeed the 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 marathon of chicago in sort of early early october um so I'm trying to sort of uh, get fit for that, the running fit. And um yeah, it's one of the one of those things that you know sometimes you just have to stretch yourself a little bit and get into the uh, uncomfortable zone, to be honest. So
0: uh, yeah. partly looking forward to it, partly pretty scared as well. <laughs> yeah. For those of you listening to us audio only, you you should go to the 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 video. Uh Michelle's pretty fit, dude. And you're Dutch, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how tall are you?
1: Uh I'm a short Dutch. As I would call it. So uh, it, uh, I'm, I'm 181, sort of six foot, um, and that you know, then I might have stretched it slightly, um, so probably slightly <laughs> close to five nine. But um, I call right. myself six foot.
0: But you're pretty well built. You got some big arms, and and being a big person going for a marathon does that change your training? I actually, uh, i probably spent the last seven months
1: uh, doing a lot of sort of weight training. So I did all the wrong things to actually run a marathon. Uh, so, uh, and it was sort of before I decided to, to go on uh, full on into my, uh, into my marathon, uh, I actually got, um, uh, married about four or five weeks ago in Canada. So I wanted to get, um, fit for that. Um, so that was my primary goal. And after that I realized, um, oh shit, I'm 12 weeks out from my marathon. So I need to start focusing on my, some, some cardio training. So I dropped the, uh, the, the gym sessions and, uh, moved it into more and more running, uh, which obviously in Canada was a, was a great place to start. Um, you know the, the temperatures are good and the nature is great. Now, now being back in Singapore, waking up with uh 30 degrees uh, centigrade isn't um, isn't the best start of the day. Um, but hopefully the Chicago Marathon, with a bit of luck, it's a lot cooler. So
0: I'm uh, I'm betting a little bit on that as well. For those of you at home who haven't been to Singapore, you can imagine a six-foot, pretty buff dude, and he's training for a marathon. It's probably a low of 28 degrees Celsius at night with about 100% humidity. So that's, exactly. uh, <laughs> that's what we're looking at over there. Speaking of fitness, though. You're, you you tend to believe pretty strongly in China's economic fitness. Uh, uh, you know, from from probably fair to characterize your stance that you're pretty bullish on China. So in your view, why is the China market so important and lucrative for brands?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's two ways. Like it, me being in the last, uh, let's say, 14, 15 years in, in the region here, um, I probably spent... And, and mainly working for, for Western uh, companies, that be US-based, European-based companies. Uh, in all honesty, a, a big portion of my my time has always been spent on educating and um, defending often this region. Right? I think there's a lot of misconceptions. Um, um, 14 years ago, and I think there are still misconceptions today. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and the interesting thing, are, especially during covid which I still believe that has hit this region significantly harder than any of the other regions. Um, you know, we went into COVID first, we came out of it last, uh, we had some severe lockdowns from, from India, China to, to even sort of Australia and everything in between. Uh, and I think a lot of people outside of this region, um, still don't really sort of understand how much that impacted, um, uh, people in general, the communities, but obviously also business. Um, so, you know, we, everybody in this region needs to be very agile and very, um, truly understanding, like what has been happening and how we are sort of getting out of that. Um, then when it comes to China specific, like the reality is there's about 1.4 billion people there. Um, so you can't ignore scale. That's about 20% of the global population, give or take. Um, so for any brand, want to do anything in, in China, you can't ignore it. Right. And it's also the other way around, like if, if, you know, an international travel out of China is still, you know, it's, it's, catching up a little bit slower than, than expected. Domestic seems to be on track, but international, uh, not really like, I'm not sure if you've, you know, you've been to, uh, let's take the European the Southern part of Europe in this summer. And everybody was complaining. It was already so busy that is without the five, 600 million Chinese that are about to travel. Right. So that's also the impact. And that's also how brands have to look at it, sort of the outbound travel. Uh, and I know from some smart brands that are, that are doing it. So I think two ways there is uh, for international brands, significant opportunity because of the skill in China. Um, if there's a country that can bounce back out of uh, setbacks, uh, then it's a country like China, um, you know, and, and, and without going into any sort of political um, d- discussions, but the fact that there is, Consistency in political leadership—you um, like it or not—obviously uh, gives them the opportunity to have have a longer-term view on things, uh, which I think is often the weakness of of countries where there's significant changes um, every four years or every eight years. Um, so I think that 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 obviously uh, gives opportunities to be bullish, um, and I think there's a lot of interesting uh, innovation coming out of China that slowly is moving into into the rest of the world um, And I think' I've, and in the past I've, a lot of people asked me about comparison for example between China and India and, and I've always thought about you know India a lot of innovation in India is happening for outside of India um, so they innovate a lot for the US uh, specifically uh, and always seen that a lot of innovation in China was happening for in China itself so there's a lot more of a domestic approach. Um, I see a shift on both sides to be honest. Um, but the, the opportunity, you know, staying to uh, talk about China a little bit more in detail, the opportunity there is, is almost beyond anywhere else. Um, and it's too large to ignore. Uh, and I think the smarter brands, let it be international or let it be domestic, understand that opportunity. Um, Again, we're talking about 1.4 billion people um, and significantly still growing economies there. And maybe maybe the GDP growth isn't as as high as you know analysts expected earlier this year, um, but that doesn't mean that the growth isn't there. That it's you know it might have a, a, a slower um, bounce back as a lot of people have uh, expected. Um, but uh, a few percent GDP growth in China is a few percent global GDP growth because of that skill and that opportunity. Um, And that's why I think everybody needs to have it on their radar.
0: Agreed. I think that it depends on how far you're looking and how big you want to dream as a brand. But if you're looking five to 10 years out and you want to be international, you have to have exposure to China even simply for the understanding and learning you that that's just an area of the world that you want to understand and learn and get to know earlier than better. It's going to be uber important. And 20 years from now, well, this podcast might not even exist because everybody should already um, be there and everything should already be understood. But the reason the podcast exists is because people are still afraid. Yeah, absolutely. But like any
1: strategy towards China needs to be at least five years. Right. Because if you, and this is where I think a lot of brands have been going wrong, uh, or they haven't picked the right partners to do it with, or they, they thought they could enter China with a one to two years strategy, uh, and a carbon copy of what they've done in other markets. And every single one of them have failed. And then they blame the market for it instead of their own ignorance. Right. And that's, and it's, it's a, I mean, if you as a brand still don't understand that, then no, maybe you shouldn't go to china in all honesty what people that i've tried to need to understand is um the innovation that comes out of the market but also the innovation of brand positioning the innovation of um um the way that I, how they approach business in all honesty all right? Um i think let's the ev industry for example electric vehicles in china is massive and is super excited and if everybody you know in in the, in the western world and i'm sort of generalizing a little bit talks about like the innovation that comes from tesla like you know if you if you look at the numbers and you know just roughly speaking uh there's probably going to be somewhere between 10 to 12 million EVs being sold in china alone tesla is there's gonna there's probably about under a million being sold in the us this year tesla produces just over a million cars a year like they are not internationally speaking, a, a big player. That's not where the innovation comes from. Right. And, um, when I was in China, I've been in China a few times this year, um, the, the, the energy, the innovation, uh, in that area, the partnerships between traditional automotive companies and tech companies that are launching these EV brands, um, are, are amazing. Right. The Shanghai auto show and, and we have to walk there with it, with a client in an international EV brand. Um, and. the the CMO of that company walked around there and did not realize that there are 40 competitors. They're present. Like and that's all like sort of Chinese innovation. And 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 there is there is abilities and opportunities for Western brands to step into that. I think VW just just announced a partnership there as well with a local player. Like because they understand that they're eating they're eating the cheese of their bread if they don't watch out. So um embrace it, work together Um, but at least learn and, and and go into that market with, um, almost sort of a, a, a clean sheet of paper on what your strategy is going to be there. Um, because if you go in there with, you know, trying to roll it out in the way that you've, you've done it before in other markets, um, it's going to cost you a lot of money and a lot of success.
0: One of the biggest takeaways kind of in aggregate of my time in China was how much I grew as a person and how much I realized I had tunnel vision and groupthink from where I came from and the small little area of the world that I existed in before that. It shattered a ton of perceptions that I didn't even know I held until they were shattered. And it was an arduous process to kind of grow and go through that but i can only imagine how important that could be for an actual company or a brand you 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 hit it on the head when you were talking about listen the innovation the way they they do marketing the way they do sales the way they do finance and and just the way they see and do business you you it's it's so different you you they're doing things over there that you wouldn't even know were possible or existed or even comprehend. So without exposure to that area of the world, you're not growing as a person like you think you did your MBA. I challenge you to go do a APAC MBA for your company. You mentioned going to China and going to Shanghai and going to the auto show. So I'd like to zoom out a little bit and ask you a broader question. What were your takeaways from visiting China earlier in the year? And, and what, did it, what was it as it was coming out? What did it look like and feel like as it was coming out of the pandemic? I think my first
1: trip to China after, after the, the COVID, the, the second large COVID lockdown, as I would describe it in China, um, was I think in February, right after Chinese New Year. So it must have been like end Feb or early early March. Um, there are a few takeaways there. Uh, one, It felt, and it it sounds horrible for, you know, all the the, the horrible months then, obviously, the the local people had. Uh, But when I was there, it felt like nothing has happened in a way that people were back on the streets, where there was energy again. There was, you know, life was back, sort of that bounce back. Um, I think very different from... What i've seen for example after covid you know going to to the west coast in the us like san fran and la etc where everybody still you know moved in there in, into the suburbs or other places and you know CBDs just being dead and well, anyway all the other challenges that, that arise there at the moment but um it felt like that was all normal um that that's one what i especially noticed um, at that time was a very very strong presence of domestic brands um like They bounced back way faster, way more agile, way, you know, way more trust and confidence, um, that everything was going to be okay again. And they didn't know, obviously exactly how that route was going to play out, but they, they jumped in, um, and modified along the way. So it was almost like a first mover advantage they had there. Um, I noticed that a lot of the international brands were still probably a little bit surprised by the all of a sudden quick opening. Um, and um, did not really have a China strategy in place. Um, while you know, at around the same time, there was a lot of sort of financial earning reports coming out, obviously of previous fin- uh, financial years, uh, and a lot of them said that you know, because of China slowdown in, in in sort of 22, their results were were impacted significantly. Right, so there's, on one hand, they're talking about how, how big the impact was in 22, uh, but they, I don't feel that everybody prepared enough for, okay, what if China opens? What is then our strategy? Let's have the playbook ready in case it happens, because it might come unexpected. Um, in that period, actually, in March, um, speaking to a couple of our uh, international uh, brands and, and clients there, um, a lot of them were actually saying that their international management team is in town that week or the week after. So there were sort of like the board meetings were moving into China to understand, you know, what is going to be our strategy. Um, so I think it was a positive direction. I think there, there were just it's about a couple of months behind uh, and it gave a lot of the domestic brands massive opportunities to, uh, and also like uh, land grab um, um, scale, in all honesty, uh, which um, is, is a hard fight to get back into. So I think, you know, honestly, I think a lot of the, the potential brands, international brands, have sort of missed a little bit of an opportunity there. Um, I think, um, so I think that's one takeaway. Um, one other takeaway um, is, well, um, it's, it's a bit of a weird one, but um, I didn't knew that Tim Hortons was so, so sort of successful in China. I think they opened like 600 uh, shops in um, uh, stores in, uh, in, in during COVID, and I was I was it was one of the times that I was like, okay, is there still room for additional coffee shops? And when I found out that Starbucks is still opening up a, a coffee shop in China every like four hours or something for the last 15 years, uh, I realized that there's still a lot of room for for coffee shops and bagels. Um, that was another takeaway. Um, but I didn't expect Tim Hortons to jump into that, um, but
0: exciting. Yeah, well, it's still fun to be excited and surprised by China. You were talking about that, that COVID thing, and, and I've never really dove into it with anybody here. And we talk about that strategy. And you mentioned, listen, you got to have a five-year kind of strategy if you're going to go to China. But man, what if you were in the middle of that strategy when COVID hit? Like if you had executed your strategy and you were positioned, you probably fared that storm pretty well. If you were mid-strategy, that might have hurt or potentially even killed your APAC strategy, and you might need a couple of years of going back home and regrouping before you go back. But then I also think that now might be one of the best times to capitalize and and go back because I think they've had two to three years of, like you said, a lot of homegrown. And and, and you're 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 hitting the nail on
1: the hat because. I, I, to be honest, I think you're right. Like being mid-strategy when something COVID hits, um, you know, and myself spending the last five years at a company that we grew from nothing to a sizable business, being hit by COVID midway, we got impacted by, by COVID massively on, the, on that strategy and set us back significantly. But to your point, um, if you then want to bring that back to the levels of excitement uh, and significant growth, Is there a better place to do it than China? Right? And 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 this is a little bit like I I can understand it's not easy to convince a board somewhere on the other side of the world that you know the, the, the two, three years of investment of strategy in China, they're they're not lost, but they're significantly behind, you know, what was expected because of all the lockdowns. But yes, to sort of really sort of come to the full completion of the strategy that we set out a few years ago, we need to double down on it. That's not the easiest conversation. But it says something. Uh, if your board agrees with that, and they they are with you on it, that means that they do understand China and the opportunity and the importance of it. Uh, and I think that's where you know no, not all companies have um, um, uh, have been able to sort of execute on that. And anyway, this is one of the things that I've, I've seen a lot during COVID. Anyway, is that and it's it's understandable. But uh, a lot of companies, uh, in times of insecurity, pull back to the mother ship, as I would call it. Um, and unfortunately, especially countries or, or strategies that are halfway execution, those would, will be the ones that are being asked first. Um, and that's, that just sets back. Uh, I think a lot of the, 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 progress that was, was, was progress potential, uh, let it be in China, but especially the, the whole region
0: as Asia. Yeah. Well, we can quote Warren Buffett. Obviously, he's a massive investor in BYD and he loves the EV and he loves the market in China. But Warren Buffett, that's his investing strategy. When everybody's selling, I'm buying. And when everybody's buying, I'm selling. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit easier when you've got unlimited funds, right? But- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When your name is Warren Buffett, you could say that. Yeah, exactly. Stuff. Yeah. OK. Well, speaking of that kind of stuff, you know, many of our listeners are either owners of consumer brands or they work at consumer brands in some capacity from your experience, then what would be the basics, the pillars of a successful China entry strategy in your opinion? To be honest, like I think
1: it starts with really going in with what I said earlier, with a clean sheet of paper, like realize that, um, um, the, the competitive field is very different. Um, target audience is different. The behavior of your target audience is, is extremely different. Pricing strategy needs to be, uh, adjusted or, or, or needs to be different. Um, you can't like, it needs to be adaptable, quick and snappy. Um, uh, environment changes extremely fast in, 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 China. Um, like I think those are the, and everybody says, yeah, I understand it. Uh, but then they still, still walk into the country with a playbook and say, okay, um, Small example, um, entry, uh, brand does an entry into, into China, um, and wants to make sure that, um, uh, the, the global brand guidelines are being followed, right? It's a small thing. Um, if you go into China, I'm not saying that you, you shouldn't be sort of protective of your brand guidelines. Um but you can't have every little asset that's being created need to be sent to the other side of the ocean for, for approval, for, you know what I mean? Like, like be adaptable to the local market and let the local market let it be with a partner or with local team, um, let them own certain areas of it that can make them compete and operate in a competitive Chinese environment. And I've seen too much protectiveness Um, from let's go, so the mothership, the HQ about what's happening in China. I'm not talking about big business practices, right? I mean, we all need to, that's, that's fundamentals and that needs to be followed at at any given time, but I'm talking about, um, um, speed to market, adaptability, positioning, pricing strategies. Like you need to set it up as a, a, a separate stream of your, your normal operations. If that makes sense. Um, like, because if you don't do that, you're, 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 you're blindfolding your team, um, into a sword fight. If you know what I mean? Like it's, it just doesn't make sense. You make life so much harder for them and uh, that will hold back massive success. Um, there's, and understand what Chinese, uh, your Chinese competitors are, are doing, right? Like, I think there is, um, ah, oh shit. I'm not sure it was, um. If it was High Sense or Xiaomi, um, one of the well, obviously local TV manufacturers, um, who did something so simple, but I think they were one of the first ones, and I've never seen it internationally uh, before, is a TV market is obviously uh, super competitive, right? Like, and that's the new models, new innovations, and all that stuff, and it, like they have very short sort of life life lifetime. Life um, well, once they're sold, they're what well, I think. People replace yeah. their TVs every five, two, three years. Or something. years. So like yeah. the models that it's, don't need to be renewed. There is often that's a very sort of uh, pricing battle, right? I'm not talking about the high end OLEDs, you know, the big screens. I'm talking about like the, the mom and pop TV. Um, and I think it was high sense with Xiaomi that says, you know what? Let's make the purchase of the TV significantly cheaper, but create an advertising network around it. So the moment you put your TV on, you see two of these advertising pre rolls, as they call them. And that co-funds the purchase price of your TV. So I can offer that TV for 30, 40% less. All that needs to happen is that when they switch it on and it's always connected to the internet anyway, they have to watch two ads before they see the real content. As a consumer of a, mom, let's call it the Mama pop TV, I don't mind watching two 15 seconds ads or two 30 second ads if I, if I can buy a TV for 200 bucks less, right? It's a, it's a strategy that, up to I think pretty recently, where Samsung launched their Samsung Ads business, none of the TV manufacturers thought about. Right now, you can go as a TV manufacturer, Western TV manufacturer, you can go into um, uh, into China and try to compete on pure pricing, but you you know what I mean? Like you're gonna lose out uh, to competitors that have a way more sort of localized and adaptable pricing strategy and, and offering in place. And that's just a small example where I'm like, why? Like, if you from, from them, from, from Global say, hey, we need to align to the pricing strategies that we have anywhere in the world, in that sort of mid-range, mom pop range, like you're never going to win market share, right? So because of, you know, you have to understand why people buy um, and how much pricing is obviously relevant. Again, that's just one example where I'm like, um, try to, don't try to compete with them, um, um, in,
0: in, 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 areas where they just outsmart you. I own two TCLs and one, or no, two Hisense and one TCL I've always felt that uh, the technology was way ahead. Uh, they were just priced a little bit lower because they weren't the brand names like Samsung um, and LG. And I knew that I was getting as good a TV for a cheaper price just because the brand name and people around here just haven't caught up yet. So
1: Actually, it, it might have been TCL and not not Hisense. I'm not sure who, who set up, but anyway, any of those set up the, uh, the uh, network model. Yeah. Uh, I thought uh, it was a, a smart strategy. Yeah.
0: It is. And if you have exposure to that market, you can see that. And then you can be maybe one of the first to take those learnings and take them back and take them to what you're doing in North America or into Europe. And you'd have winning strategies and it will pay dividends, even even the expense and those pioneering costs for your company to go in. You're getting that back and what you're learning and how you're growing as a company and how innovative you are. I liked what you said about blindfolding your company or your staff or whoever's kind of in that expansion uh, team going across. I almost think it's even more than blindfolded. People who are blindfolded know that they don't know what's out there. So they're actually reaching and grasping. But I think it's worse because what they're doing is they're not checking their ego at the door and they're trying to take what they've already done and just inject it and lay it into the new region that they're going. So, I mean, at least people that are blindfolded know that they can't see. These people don't know that they can't see. They just think they're just seeing something else. Therefore, they can't see what they should see. Yeah, fair enough. Absolutely. So you've held APAC-wide leadership positions at some of the world's largest marketing companies, you have a perspective that's broader than just China. So I want to lean in a little bit more on other areas in APAC. So looking beyond China, what are the APAC consumer markets that excite you the most? Well, It has to be India,
1: um, you know, honestly, for for a few reasons. I think the uh, obviously scale of opportunity there as well. Um, I think interestingly enough, and I, I said it earlier in the podcast that I was always felt that india uh, was always developing and innovating for outside of india um i see a lot more innovation happening in in uh, in india for india so domestically um i think also empowered by um you do significant investments that the likes of google facebook and and, and amazon did did in the in market um and i think the you know the likes of uh, of mukesh and bani etc a couple of the the, the, the very wealthy uh, investors and, and, and in, uh, people in markets um, looking at some um, Chinese su- successes and trying to replicate that into into India. Um, I think he's, he's, he just announced that he wants to launch a sort of a WeChat style super app um, and, and and bring that into into market. Um, I've seen a lot of um, disruptiveness in India that, that, has, that excites me. Um, I've seen um, the the way that they've, they 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 challenge the tele, the telecom industry, and um, it made data very affordable. And it's, the sort of switch from feature phones into smartphones because of that has has driven sort of digital adoption a lot. So there's I've seen a lot of interesting things in India in uh, happening. I think the big challenge in India I still see is um, um, and sort of sort of quality brand positioning. I think a lot of the local uh, Indian brands, they're just very, very, I'd uh, say bad in positioning the brand from a quality perspective. Um, and um, it's about, it's just, there's some some comparison to China and that, to be honest, because um, in China, a couple of years ago, all of a sudden that switch um, was made as well where, where brands were able to position themselves uh, in a more sort of premium way, by just, just, just the, 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 they put a lot more, more effort into uh, the brand value and the positioning of it. And, um, um, and I saw th- one of the first brands I think in China that, that did a consumer brand was, um, you know, DGI from the, the drones and stuff. I think that was, for me, that was one of the first sort of Chinese consumer products that I looked at. I was like, Hey, this looks like. High quality, well positioned, well written document. You know what I mean? Like it's, a, you open up a yeah. packaging, you pay whatever, a couple of hundred bucks for it, you open it up and you're like, okay, this, this looks good. Right. So I, I yeah. as a, as a, as a Western consumer looked at it as like, okay, this is, this is a quality product. If, if it flies well or not, that's a different story. I think it was pretty decent, but, um, and I, that's what I still miss in, in India, in all honesty. That sort of the, the quality positioning, um, because I don't know a lot of indian brands let it be for any domestically or internationally i was like okay this is this feels like quality um but i'm i'm not the on, the audience in india obviously but it's i think that's sort of the next step they need to get into so i think that that's india on one one side um but a lot of people you know there's you know this is going to be the year of indonesia there's always the, the talks about that just because of the scale uh, you know 250 300 million people etc um I love India. I'm a little bit less bullish about it because I think there's a lot of complexity there. Well, for me, actually, the, the next country in that list would be um, Vietnam. Uh, young population, uh, but I'm not. And the main thing there is um, it reminds me a little bit of China back in the day and Singapore back in the days. What we were talking about, like if you walk to Ho Chi Minh uh, or Hanoi, you feel that energy. That vibe is going on there. there's there's there's, there's stuff bubbling up. If you know what I mean. And, um so that excites me about Vietnam um and I think there's a lot of it's a good bridge between Southeast Asia and China as well um I think it's sort of sort of accepted on both sides um and uh, I think there's there's a lot of innovation potential coming coming from that um uh, very domestically focused obviously a lot of local brands but still a lot of Western brands trying to get get a foothold uh, there uh, I don't know it's just it's just good energy. Uh, and I think that, that, that gives, might not have the, the, the ultimate scale as some of the other markets. Um, but I think there will be a lot, uh, good, sort of good innovation coming out of that market, uh, in the, in the near future. Uh, and, and a growing population, young population, um, very exciting stuff.
0: Two of my favorite vacations uh, that I've ever had, one to Bali and one to Nha Trong for kitesurfing in Vietnam. Uh, both yeah, were just amazing. absolutely brilliant vacations. I loved it. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that uh, I'm going to intentionally try to set you off with a very naive question. Can brands simply employ a regional strategy when it comes to APAC? <laughs> yes and no.
1: Okay. Because it depends on the alternative. Um if the regional strategy is there to replace the global strategy, then yes, right? Uh, because going in with a global strategy sets you up for failure even more. If the regional strategy replaces local strategy, then obviously no. Um, and then I, th- I think at sort of the, the middle way to that is probably have more sort of a, a four or five sort of sub-regional approaches. Um, you know, you sort of take uh, South South, south, uh, Southeast uh, Asia around uh, sort of the India Pakistan corner you take Southeast Asia itself you take sort of um, uh, ANZ you take greater China and you sort of bundle and I know they don't like it you bundle sort of um, um, Japan and Korea a little bit um, and then you can set up a little bit more sort of sub sub regional strategies again it's not perfect as well but I think it's it's really what's the starting point yeah um, is, is I think the the main thing there. Uh, I think you have to watch out. Well, I don't think any anybody should go into into APAC, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, they shouldn't look at it that way. Um, you go into a specific country. You know, every country is different in that, and you have country strategies. Uh, and and once countries are established, it doesn't mean you can't put them over sort of a regional leadership um, if that's relevant. Uh, but my strategy will always be to keep regional. Let it be leaderships or operation, whatever it is, as light as possible, uh, and build as much as possible uh, in market itself. Uh, but again, it all depends. You know, if if global strategy is the alternative, then uh, please let's go ahead with regional.
0: I mean, I think there are some solutions as far as maybe logistics and some some distribution center hubs that you can. Maybe look at maybe there's some finance options. Absolutely, I think you know the. uh, How I normally look
1: at it is like um, commoditized services. I think there's there's always there's two things there. There's commoditized services. You have to ask yourself if you want to get into commoditized commoditized services because they're very um, price uh, focused. There's lower lower margin. If you that's from a more from a from an offering point of view, Uh, but if you have those, then I absolutely would try would try to centralize that at a lower cost location especially if it's what i said if they're, they're commoditized and often it's it's relatively straightforward work if it comes to more sort of back office type activities, that would be finance etc yes you, you try to sort of centralize that as much as possible as well um but everything that's that's client facing and needs to be hyper local um you need to build it up there so uh, yeah it also depends a lot on on um uh, what type of product we're talking about or services obviously um so there's not, not a, a one-size-fits-all. Um, but the interesting thing is that all the models have been tried and tested, and some of them work for one and don't work for the other. And often it's, it's also pretty cyclical, right? There is... Depends a little bit on leadership often as well, where they have more of a, a local versus regional approach. Um, and again, there's there's no right and wrong. Um, um, it just depends on, you know, what works um, for what type of company at what time. Um, but when it comes to... Um, you know really trying to enter some of the key markets um like you're never going to be successful in china trying to do it out of singapore right? like just, it, it doesn't work that way like back in the day, back in the day something like, like 10 15 years ago it's like okay um i'm going to set up a region hq i'm going to do it or in singapore or in hong kong i do singapore if i also want to enter south asia and be close to australia i do hong kong if I want to enter China, because at that time, you know, setting up in in China mainland wasn't as easy. So you take Hong Kong as your your sort of regional HQ and then try to sort of build it out from there. I think that time is, is has passed. Like you, you need your boots on the ground. Uh, it's already difficult enough to do business in Beijing from Shanghai, for example. Let alone from Hong Kong, if you know what I mean. Like so, or Shenzhen or Nanjing, whatever whatever it is. So you, you have to go. You have to go local if you if you're serious about it. But you don't have to do it all at the same time, right? There's And again, that's why there's a, you know, you're not going to roll a market out or region out in a year. So there needs to be at least a five year strategy uh, against it.
0: Yeah, it would take a pretty big bank account to be able to do multiple three or four markets at the same time, just yeah. because of the amount of spend that you are going to have to put into having local and boots on the ground, as you said. Yeah, I think that that's
1: but it's one. But I think it also, also the besides the fact that, you, I mean, if you, you know, you have, you have a big bank account, and you say, let's say you can you can fund it. Let's not underestimate the, the, the time and attention it needs to have from existing leadership to support it, who often already have, you know, the day-to-day job, if you know what I mean. Like if you're, you can be a global CFO, CEO, or ops, whatever whatever it is, and all of a sudden you're launching five marks at the same time in Asia, that's going to take a lot of your time as well, no matter how many people uh, you, you employ for it. You need to keep your head in, in, into it as well, because it's such a different environment. Um, and it might be partly off the global strategy. You need to be across that.
0: Um, so it's, it's both money and time at at all senior levels. All right, Michelle, last question. What are some of the most significant trends within the broader ad industry that we should be paying attention to, or that are simply just your favorites?
1: Ad industry or sort of our daily lives. Um, I think the only right answer probably is, is AI there, right? I, I have to admit. Um, and that's, it's an, it's exciting. Uh, I don't I think it's scary, but I think it's mainly exciting. Uh, we have no idea what's coming at us, uh, at any industry uh, and, and in any of our lives. Uh, but when it comes to the ad industry, it's, it's, it's going to impact us from. The impact on uh, copywriting, uh, personalization at greater scale, uh, more automation around sort of the media buying side, efficiency, effectiveness for on on client and agency sides. Um, It's impacting us in in so many different ways. And then the negative side of it, and I think maybe not as exciting, but still very exciting, but in a different way, is obviously the the impact of sort of misinformation that comes out of it. That um, and how we deal with that, because... When you're in the in the not only the ad industry, we're sort of in marketing and sort of media in general, we are able to steer minds in the direction that we want minds to go. That's a function of our industry, right? If we like it or not. Like we we're we're trying to convince that soap A is better than soap B. When you walk into that store that you you pick soap A and not soap B. That is our that's a function of sort of the ad industry. Uh, when we say that something is better or like AI can have scary impact on that in, in, in many ways. And I think that sort of misinformation is, is, um, is a res- it's an industry responsibility to uh, react on and work on and, and find solutions. So that's sort of the, um, the, the dark side potentially of it. I think one trend that, that unfortunately I've seen pushed back a little bit um, is, is the whole dis- discussion around sustainability which would be good if we could sort of bring it back a little bit more to to the front. And I think it's partly, you know, in, in, in times of um, financial uncertainties, you see that the, you know, we, we see it also in like the sustainability funds, etc. is that great to still exist, but eventually, you know, people put money somewhere to get an ROI out of it. So all of a sudden it becomes a lot more sort of the money focused again than the, the purpose focused. And um, so hopefully, you know, when, you know, maybe not this year, but the next year when, interest rates are going down and hopefully some some pe money flows back then um the the sustainability um topics and criteria come back to um um uh, higher on the priority list um because i think that's um uh it's important to do um just in not just in, in the ad industry but just in general i think you know a little bit of a sidestep but I mean, you're 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 living in an environment where you have four fires uh, everywhere around. We had a crazy hot summer in in, in Europe. There's like there's a lot of um, um, bad stuff happening with the world, which I think we all uh, uh, need and can pay a little bit more attention to. It's a bit of a sidestep, but it's an important one.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for that. And Michelle, thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate you being on the podcast with us. You're welcome, Todd. Thank you for inviting me. All right. For everybody watching us on YouTube, don't forget we have the audio version of the podcast everywhere you get your podcast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you name it. And for those of you listening to us audio only, don't forget that we are on the YouTube channel over at WPIC.co. So for me, for everybody at The Negotiation and for Michelle, thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time growing a company is hard doing it in a foreign market exponentially so the best piece of advice i can give you is not to do it alone when you start looking at the asia pacific region for further expansion possibilities and i sincerely hope you do make sure you choose the right partners to do it with